Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative question of whether and how politics should appear in our preaching this week. My name is Raj Patta and I'm a minister in the United Stockport Circuit of the Methodist Church. Each week I'm joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. And today I'm very pleased to introduce my guest who is Reverend Dr. Simon Woodman. And Simon is the minister of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church in West End of London. He is also a Baptist chaplain for King's College London, and he was previously a market stall holder at Camden Market, a Baptist minister in Bristol, tutor at South Wales Baptist College and at Cardiff University. So I'm delighted to have Simon with me and a very warm welcome to you, Simon. Thanks, Raj. It's really great to be here. Yeah. Thank you very much, Simon, for joining us today. So politics in the pulpit. I wonder what that means to you or how would you, could you tell us a little more about yourself and whether you see yourself as a, a political, theological practitioner, pulpit practitioner? Yeah, I, I guess I do. Um, so when I started at Bloomsbury, uh, I've been there 10 years now, uh, I can remember my preach with a view for that. Um, and it was on the 10th anniversary of um, the 9-11 bombings. So I was I was preaching there on the 10th anniversary. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to put it all out and see what happens in terms of whether this is a church that's a good fit for my kind of preaching. And I spoke about um, the politics of international uh, violence, terrorism, spirals of destruction, um, I just thought, let's see what happens. And of course, the end result of that was they said, would you might like to come and be our minister? Um, but actually, that's within the history of the church. So if you go back um, to 1848, when the church was founded, it was founded by a politician. Uh, his name was Sir Samuel Morton Peter, and he was a liberal politician. And his vision for founding Bloomsbury Baptist was that it would be uh, a place where uh, so society and the gospel meet in ways that are transformative of society. And, and the first minister um, that he employed was a guy called William Brock, we think is the person who actually came up with that phrase that's become quite famous, uh, which is that um, the Bible and the Times newspaper are the best materials for the preacher. Uh, we've got records of him saying that in about 1848, 1849. Other, many other people have said it since, but we think that originates with him. And we try and hold to that idea of taking current events and, and the gospel and bringing them together to see where that takes us. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, Simon. I think quite a, a rich history. And, uh, uh, and and I'm really glad that you call yourself uh, the political, theological pulpit practitioner, which is really good. And your context helps you for that. Yeah. So, Simon, from your own context, what would you want us to hear as some key justice issues and political issues today? I think this week it's very hard to go anywhere other than the Ukraine. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I, last week I, I held off writing my sermon until Friday because you know it was obvious something was likely to happen, and I thought if I write something on Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to be rewriting it later in the week anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think in a week like this, 
where there's war uh, occurring in our area, affecting people who are known to people in our congregations. It's very hard to go very far from that. But that said, um, I, I mean, I will normally try and address issues around peace and justice. Uh, I'll normally uh, want to address issues around inclusion, uh, particularly paying attention to those who have been excluded from church life um, in other contexts. So those sorts of justice and inclusion issues uh, are regular themes in my preaching. So I, I don't feel by turning our eyes to the Ukraine, that's a departure for me from where I think uh, faith ought to be in the pulpit. I, I think we ought to be looking at these issues anyway. Mm. Yeah. No, thanks, Simon. I think that's really helpful that justice, inclusion uh, are your key issues. And you have always been engaging on that from the perspective of the gospel, which is brilliant. Uh, yeah. each, each week I ask uh, our joint public issues team colleagues for a little roundup of uh, of their expertise or what they think might we might keep an eye on in the world this week. And as you have rightly said, we can't but think about the situation in Ukraine and Russia. So these are some of the suggestions that our colleagues from the Joint Public Issues team has given us. Uh, so two massive stories, not sure we will have, uh, but Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. At the time of recording, fighting is ongoing, but Russian forces have not been able to take the major cities. Putin has put Russia's nuclear forces on special alert but minor delegations from Russia and Ukraine will meet for talks on Monday. The United, the UNCHR estimates about 422,000 Ukrainians have fled the country with over 100,000 internally displaced and nearly 2,000 Russians have been detained for protesting against the war. Economic sanctions are beginning to have some immediate effects. Much will change between now and uh, in the days to come, but there are many possibilities. So this information should can be updated as we approach Sunday. And the Joint Public Issues team have written a prayer for Ukraine and recorded a 10-minute podcast explaining the conflict and how we should respond, as well as some they're collecting some useful resources from elsewhere. And you can find that at jointpublicissues.org.uk slash a prayer for Ukraine. Uh, we must also not forget the ongoing conflicts in the other parts of the world, in Yemen, in Myanmar, Syria, Central African Republic, Mexico, Nigeria, uh, Algeria, Libya, Somalia. So the, the whole canvas of violence and conflict in which we live today. Uh, on, this, on today, the 28th of February, both the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill and the Nationality and Borders Bill Return to Parliament, and over a thousand faith leaders from across the country have signed a letter uh, calling on Boris Johnson to rethink the Borders Bill, and which again people can find on the Joint Public Issues website. Uh, and we also begin the season of Lent this week uh, with Ash Wednesday and the World Day of Prayer. So both this, the what we have in our context and what we have in our church life, it's quite intense, but it is important for us to hold the gospel and the context together and try to see how best can we translate the meaning and value of the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant for our times today. And Simon, as you have already said about this metaphorical usage of newspapers on one hand and Bible on the one hand, other hand, 
now having heard what is happening in the world if we want to turn our bibles for this sunday is there any particular passage or a theme or a question with which you want to think and start from the readings for this week well i think that there is a kind of a theme emerging across the four main passages um which which struck me uh, particularly in the light of where we're at this week i i think these texts are all um, kind of replete with reflection on issues around power and nationalism and borders and land and conquest and glory uh, what kind of a nation do we want to be what kind of leadership do we want i think those those questions are, are, are asked in a number of different ways by each of the four passages mm. um but I, i mean i think it may, maybe it's worth starting starting with the gospel and the temptation of jesus mm. um and, and then kind of maybe go from there into some of the the background texts that support it and how the epistle kind of reflects on on similar themes mm. Mm. um I mean I think particularly with the uh, the temptation passage from Luke 4 mm. uh, we've got here uh, I think at the heart of this is the question of what kind of a leader um do the people want mm. and you know in in the background to this is the uh, the messianic expectation that existed within second temple Judaism at the, at the time of Jesus and uh, not all of the Jews of that period had Uh, agreement on what they thought the messiah was going to be like but there was certainly a strand running through it who who saw the messiah as somebody who was going to be you know a son of david uh, a king like great david had been a king someone who would restore uh, israel's political power restore its geographical borders to the the extent described in in the david narratives of of the hebrew bible Uh, and who would you know be a military leader and overthrow the romans mm. and uh, secure independence and and sort of economic political and financial security for the state so mm. when jesus is then kind of being set up by uh, by luke as was he drawing on on mark's gospel here uh, when jesus is being set up by luke as as a messiah this question of is he that kind of messiah is he that kind of leader is mm. at the forefront of the way luke tells this story mm-hmm. and i think what we've got in these three temptations is a systematic undermining of that kind of leadership mm-hmm. and an invitation to see leadership christ's way uh, messianism christ's way as something profoundly different so jesus walks away from and resists the temptation to satisfy one's desires he he walks explicitly away from the temptation to rule the world mm. and you know he walks away from a temptation to become like god and mm. um, I, i just can't help but think you know as we're looking at what what obviously what putin is doing in russia um and the way that he, perhaps his leadership is being contrasted with the leadership that we're seeing in the Ukraine but also what do we want from our leaders you know what do we expect from our government in the UK what do we want them to be doing i think it raises really profound questions for us about what we think leadership should be in our world and how this speaks to our expectations mm. well that's profound simon because the way you you pitched in to say jesus has come to be a, a messiah not on its popular perspective but a messiah from within from within the community and not just uh, what you call running away from the temptations but facing it confronting it and also resisting it and also giving uh, uh, an alternate leadership model for all those who follow jesus or for our times today 
But if you mm. specifically look at the temptations, Simon, mm. uh, I was just thinking like one how evil quotes scripture. Yeah. So what is your take like? Who knows the scripture? Who says who? Who knows? I mean, so uh, how, how do we say that scripture is only for people who who know the scripture? Even yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got this fascinating, well, almost kind of exchange of proof texts between Jesus and and the devil at this point. And you know, Jesus is very pithy in his quoting of Deuteronomy, and you know, then the devil comes back and goes, "Bam! Well, you you quote Deuteronomy, I'll quote you Psalm ninety-one." And yes. um, so, you know, I, I've been caught up in in debates with other people where we've ended up trading proof texts to prove our point and uh, make ourselves right. And it's right. always counterproductive, um, I think, to to try that because you never end up you never end up convincing the other person. Mm. But uh, I mean, I, I I think what's interesting about the Psalm ninety one passage, which, which um, you know the devil quotes that Jesus, yes. um, you know this 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 uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard all your ways and on your hands they'll bear you up so that you won't dash your foot against the stone. Um, I mean, Psalm ninety one is. Uh, it, it's always a little bit hard to date Psalms, but it is probably exilic or post-exilic. So it's probably coming from a time where Israel was uh, facing, you know, huge problems at the hands of uh, a foreign power. So if, if it comes from the exile, then this is the time where Babylon has invaded and, you know, the ruling elite of Israel are in exile. Or if it's just post-exilic, maybe it's after they've come out of that, but that's still a recent memory. Mm. And it's an invitation. Uh, Psalm 91 is an invitation for the people of God to trust God for their security. Yeah. And you, you can kind of hear how in that context, where the people of Israel have recently been bullied and abused by a foreign power, a call to trust God and, and to say, my security is in God. God will sustain me. You can hear that as, as a very authentic expression of faith in a time of difficulty. And, you know, I we, we've been in touch through the Baptist worlds and through the European Baptist Federation with Baptists in the Ukraine. And mm -hmm. um, we're praying for we're praying for them in church. And you can kind of imagine Christians in the Ukraine now saying, you know, we will continue to trust in God. We will continue our acts of mercy. We will we will trust in God as somebody is trying to oppress us. The danger with that sort of language is um if it becomes transposed into a context where the people of God, whoever they may be at any given moment, have got a lot of power, mm. that same thing that really works at the point where they're the underdog and are the oppressed people can become an excuse for those same people of God to dominate others and to say, well, look, you know, our trust is in God. We're the righteous ones because our security comes from God and you, you've got to, you've got to allow us to then be the top dogs now. And, you know, we see this in Christendom, uh, the, the, when Christianity moves from being the underdog of the first few centuries of its existence into its collusion with the Roman Empire. And suddenly it's the state religion of an empire. The very texts that were the right texts when they're the underdog can become the texts that become the tools of oppression and domination. And I think that's what Satan's doing here with this Psalm 91 passage. He's yoinking it out of context and using it to say, hey, look. Here's a temptation to power. Uh, God's going to uphold you, whatever you do. Mm. And Jesus kind of responds, you know, I, I appreciate this is a public podcast, but don't take the mick is kind of Jesus's response. You know, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't, that's not the right way of trusting in God. Mm. But 
I think we, we all need to recognize, particularly those of us who are Christians in countries where Christianity is powerful or has been powerful, um, these texts can become an excuse to justify our domination and our imperialism and our self-righteousness. That's not what they were written for, and that's not the right interpretation of them. But we too can hear Satan whispering in our ears, going, you know, you're right, it's them that are wrong. Trust God, you're on God's side, God's on your side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at a situation like Ukraine, are we really right at every turn? Have we done nothing in the West to create mm-hmm. at least some part of this context? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not trying to let Putin and Russia's aggression off the hook by any means, but I, I think this kind of self-righteous media narrative that he's wrong and we're absolutely right that doesn't quite ring true to the historical reality of how conflicts start that's true and you have said it really well like how people in power appropriate scripture for their own uh, pleasures and for justifying what they do yeah and we have seen it across in the history like when racism for racism people have used text for occupation people have used religious texts for discrimination as slaves and masters, they have used text. Oppression for women, they have used the scripture. So all along, all across the spectrum, people have misused the the scripture for their own uh, for their own ends. And I think uh, what I hear from you is that we we need to be a little more careful in how we use the text because even the evil is using the scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially so when Christianity finds itself in positions of power and influence. I, I think that's where that's where it's particularly dangerous. You know, the temptation for Jesus here was mm. to set himself up as a kind of God. Um, mm. And we, we have that temptation, too. Uh, and we can twist scripture then to justify our own self-righteousness. Mm. Yeah, I think which I think we all as listeners, I'm sure Simon is challenging us to confess if we are appropriating scripture to justify our own self-righteousness powerful claims and i think this sunday is an invitation for us uh, particularly as we begin the season of lent uh, uh, simon i mean if, if we continue to look at to the scriptures mm-hmm. so I, I was thinking uh, the temptations are also like how the devil quotes i mean the third temptation the devil says for it is written mm-hmm. first it was an oral conversation and then it goes on to the written text yeah. So how again people, how do people use, misuse, abuse the so-called writtenness of the story? Yeah, I, I, I think people have a tendency to um, think that the Bible is some kind of definitive guidebook for uh, behavior. Mm. And I'm not quite sure I see it that way. I, I, I prefer to think of the Bible as a kind of a series of thought experiments concerning the nature of God. Hmm. You know, there, there are places in the Bible where God is presented as violent. Hmm. There are places in the, and telling, telling the people of God to go and wage war. There are hmm. other places in the text where God is clearly presented as nonviolent. Hmm. Um, there are places in the text where people are told, you know, if, if something bad is happening in your life, it's because you've sinned. And then you get the book of Job, who has bad things happen in his life, clearly because he's not sinned. So mm. I, I think scripture is, is this long tradition of wrestling with um, who God is. And sometimes it's kind of trying out, well, if God is like that, where does that where does that take us? And maybe it takes us into a place of hell on earth and, and violence and war. 
So then you need to kind of say, well, maybe maybe God's like this instead. So I'm very nervous about uh, the kind of Christianity that just says it's in the Bible. I'm going to read it and I'm going to directly apply it to today. I think you've got to read it in context. You've got to understand how it interacts with other passages. And for me, um, as, as, a, as, as a Christ-centered Christian, I mean, these days, I, because I'm middle-aged and my eyes are a little bit uh, shorter-sighted than they were, I, I have to wear glasses these days, longer-sighted than I have to wear glasses these days. Um, when I read the Bible, I want to put on lenses of Christ. So mm. I want to read the whole of the Bible through the lens of God's revelation in Jesus. Mm. So... You know, when I come to Psalm 91, such as is quoted by Satan here, I, I, I want to say, well, how do I read that through a Christ lens rather than just reading it directly? And mm. I think that's a legitimate thing for a Christian to do in, in preparation for sermons and preaching and inviting our congregations to be to be discriminating and discerning about how we read scripture rather than undiscriminating and undiscerning, which is, I'm afraid, what I think a lot of people get, get wrapped up in doing. Mm. No, which is important, I think, Simon. So all you're saying is we have a politics of the scripture, which is these are different experiences of people in their own context of how they understood faith and God and how God intervened into their times. And so we need to be open to such God's intervention for our times uh, rather than seeing it as a prescriptive text for a behavior or things like that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and where there's tension there, I, I seek to resolve that by going primarily to the revelation of God in Jesus. Yeah. So Jesus becomes the lens through whom, yeah. through which we need to read our text and apply our text and translate it for our times today. Yeah, so I yeah, think yeah. That, that takes assignment to the epistle from Book of Romans. I mean, again, Paul was Paul is trying to say your confession. I mean, if you say it with your lips and believe it in your heart, you will be saved. And how do we understand uh, salvation? In, in this in our context today yeah um i think one of the questions is in terms of salvation is what is it that we what is it that we are being saved from mm. um my, my wife has has a wonderful phrase which is that everybody needs saving it's just some people need saving from different things to other people mm. and you know so, some of us who've been hanging around church a long time need to be saved from the legalism that comes with a a long familiarity with church mm. other people need to be saved from other things um you know they may need to be saved from destructive behaviors they may need to be saved from ways of being that are you know that don't bring honor to, to god and and uh, you know abuse themselves in that um so i i think talk of salvation um i think what are we being saved from is an interesting question perhaps to ask our congregations because it, it might be different for different people and I think as preachers, we've got to be got to be careful not to write our own experience of salvation onto others. You know, I can remember as a, as a kid um, hearing you know a passage like this being preached. Uh, the invitation was every Sunday night when we had the gospel service to, you know, be saved again, say the sinner's prayer. And I've, like, I've been saying this since before I could talk. How, how is this meaningful? Um, maybe what I need to be saved from was something else. But, yeah. you know, the preacher who'd had the radical conversion from a life of sin and depravity into the light of the gospel, and that was their salvation story, it's a different story. So mm. I think we, we just need to be a bit alert not to write our own experience of God's grace in our lives, mm. saving us, on just thinking it's going to be exactly the same for everybody. Um, mm. I mean, the fundamental problems of uh, sin and death oppressing humanity remain, 
but the way we need to be saved from that, I think, differs. Mm. Um, and again, there's the question of what are we being saved to as well, um, which I think is is another question mark to hang over this. What does it mean that we are being saved? What does what does that mean for us? What does that take us to? Mm. I think part of the background to this passage is uh, found at the beginning in verse 8, where we get this phrase, the word is near you on your lips and on your heart. Um, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. And I think, you know, there's a, there's echoes here of John's gospel. Um, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Uh, and in, in terms of the Hebrew Bible background, this is the wisdom tradition. Uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible presents God personified as a spoken word. And in, in that case, it, it's the, the feminine uh, word personified as, as wisdom. And, and in Jesus, we've got a male form of God personified. Um, but I think that there, there's an invitation there to realize that Christ is as close to us, speaking in and through us, as God was as close to Christ, speaking in and through Christ. So I think there's an invitation here really to locate this statement, it's programmatic statement of salvation mm. in an understanding that it comes from the nearness of Jesus. So maybe in the end, what salvation is, is a recognition that Jesus is drawn near to us mm. and is in us and working and speaking through us. Mm. And maybe everything beyond that is, is secondary. Mm. No, I think it's very important for us to hear Simon this week these two questions, salvation from and salvation to, and yeah. again, trying to translate and locate it into our own context. And because there is no one size fit for all, and yeah. God's grace comes to us equally. And I think Paul uh, continues to say in verse 11 and 12, but there is no distinction between Jews and Greek. The same Lord, the Lord is Lord of all and is generous. Yeah. So you, you have touched about inclusion. So how, how should we understand salvation as Inclusive. Yeah. So I think it, 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 if if the reality is that Christ has drawn near to me, mm. then the reality is also true that Christ has drawn near to them. Mm. So it's not just for me and mine, but it is for all. And this this breaking down of the ethnic division between Jew and Greek. And of course, you know, else in Galatians 3.28, he goes a little bit further and he talks about Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female. So I, I think you can read that into this. You know, this is Paul saying he's really the preacher who's repeating himself a little bit, but he's just changing it slightly. Yeah. Um, I think in Paul, Paul sees that the, the, the truth of Christ drawing near is a truth that saves us from the barriers that divide humanity and I think we need to look at where those barriers are in our world and internalize in our hearts and then in our actions what it is for those barriers to be broken down and it may be that those are barriers of ethnicity i mean our you know our society is still riven with ethnic tension uh, it may be barriers of class uh, and economics and poverty i mean what a divided economic society we live in you know i'm involved in a campaign to help lift people out of fuel poverty in london too many people have to choose between food and heating their homes, and that's going to get worse over the next year or two with the cost of living crisis that we know is coming. Mm. Uh, I think there are other divisions that perhaps are not named there, but which are real to us. I think, mm. you know, from, from my own church experience, divisions around sexuality uh, sit alongside the divisions Paul names around gender. Uh, mm. How can we break down those barriers? Uh, what does it mean to say in Christ there's no distinction between um british or ukrainian or russian 
Mm. Yeah, what does that do about how we deal with the conflicts we're facing this week? To recognise yeah. that Christ is in all uh, mm. and, and is known to all and draws near intentionally to all. And there's no one side of this debate, this fight, this conflict that can claim Christ's exclusive presence with them. Mm. Mm. I mean, the, the text is tricky, like Paul is saying, those who call on the Lord and everyone yes. who calls on the Lord. Yeah. How do we understand this calling on the Lord? Who calls on the Lord and who doesn't call on the Lord? And how, how do we understand that again? Yeah, yeah. So I I resist the narratives of um, only those who have, are um, Christians are, are loved by God. Uh, mm. I, I, I think Paul is trying to break down exactly that kind of distinction. So, you know, um, in, in the first century, uh, Judaism saw itself as the people of God and the Gentiles were not the people of God. And mm. I think Paul, as, as a Jew who has uh, had this revelation that God's love goes beyond his own ethnic people, is wanting to say God's love is for Gentiles too. So mm. uh, I think that the trajectory of this passage is one of breaking down any barrier, be it ethnic or religious or doctrinal, that might be it erected around Jesus. So I don't think this passage is saying, you know, if, if you name Jesus as Lord, you're going to go to heaven. And if you don't name Jesus yes. as Lord, you're going to go to hell. I actually think the passage is saying precisely the opposite, which is that in Christ, God draws near to all and mm. that the offer of salvation, uh, the, the turning away from destructive patterns of being human towards a better way of being human in Christ, that that is available for all wherever you sit on any side of any religious, cultural, doctrinal, mm. ethical, mm. ethnic, you know, all of those divides are broken mm. down in Christ. Mm. Uh, I think that's very important, Simon, for uh, for this for, for us this week. And I'm sure our listeners will engage with this when Paul is saying there is no distinction of Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, all the barriers are broken down. So just don't yeah. put some people in this pocket and some in the other and say these are more, these are better people because who call and those who don't call. But in Christ, all you're saying is all these barriers are broken and God in Jesus is coming to us and granting us that love nearer and nearer uh, to, to all of us. Yeah. So that takes us, Simon, to the Old Testament reading for this week, which is from the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. So again, in that promised land, land of milk and honey, you have already raised before saying about this conquest, invasion. So how do we understand this text uh, from Deuteronomy? Yeah, this is the, the kind of the first truths uh, text. But of course, what, what this story finds its origin in is, is a story of conquest. Mm. Um, you know, we've got we've got the people of God leaving an experience of, of slavery and being the underdogs and then marching a bit like an army through the wilderness. I mean, you know, you read how it, how they're arrayed in their marching through the wilderness. It, it's described a bit like an army on the march. And mm. then after 40 years, they enter the land and they, they take the land, mm. um, which I find deeply uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, what does it mean to say God gives us this and not them a right to live? Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're bemoaning an invasion of one land by another people. And then mm. we've got a text here that has its origins in the invasion of one land by another people. Mm. And I think the warning here is for us to hear that history is often written by the winners. So, mm. you know, this text of Deuteronomy, um, the scholars tell us this takes shape uh, in, in probably in or around the time of uh, the, the exile in Babylon. 
Uh, it's describing events um, from Israel's mythic history that have occurred centuries or even millennia uh, before the point at which the text is written. And the, the text is being written, I think, to kind of justify before God this uh, idea that it's our land and our people because God's given it to us. Um, and I, I just think we have to we have we have to be a bit cautious about applying that too definitively into a contemporary context of any nation uh, mm. laying claim to a land as theirs by God's right mm. uh, at the expense of others who may also have a right to live there. Mm -hmm. Now I think it is really important that we need to see, as you said, history most times have been written from the dominant perspective or the winner's perspective. And yeah. so therefore they triumphalize in terms of invasion and conflict and conquest. But yeah. all you are challenging us as listeners this week is uh, be a little more cautious. Let's try yeah. to read history from the undercurrent, from the downside. What yeah. is history for those who have been conquested, I mean, invaded? Yeah. And, and you know, I, the other thing I would say is um, always do your biblical studies homework when on the passages you're preaching on. Work out why they are the way they are. When were they actually written? Who were they written for? What's the context they're addressing? And then you can find points of correspondence between that context and our own world. But mm. I think we, we have to we have to do our homework as preachers before mm. we try and apply it to our congregation's world. Mm. Uh, otherwise, we can just end up you know, using a text to justify yes. all sorts of stuff. I mean, you gave us some great examples earlier of the way the Bible has been used to justify all kinds of oppression. And that is where you get to if you don't do your contextual home, homework first. Mm -hmm. So I, I think which is important, it correlates to the temptation where the evil, the devil is quoting the scriptures to meet its own justifying, I mean, it don't, its own uh, dominant narratives. But I yeah. think the challenge is don't just be carried away by the dominant narrative. Try to understand what does this text means for people who have been invaded. And again, even in the modern history, people have used scripture as a sanction to occupy, to invade uh, yep. land across the history, which we are seeing, be it in Palestine, a, a, again, uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict has a, a religious Christian angle, how one church says this is this is good and the others, uh, they are demonizing Ukrainians as evil forces. So there are all sorts of things which we need to be a little more cautious, try to see where the divine is present in all of this. Uh, uh, and, and engage in a conversation with the text for each week. Yeah, absolutely. And and I always come back to how do we read this through the lens of Jesus? You know, whose side is Jesus on? Uh, mm. is, is always a really interesting question to ask in any situation of conflict. And mm. the evidence of the Gospels is Jesus goes over borders. He goes to the people who others have said are unacceptable. Mm. And uh, he he challenges narratives of exclusion and dominance. Mm. Mm. Which is important. I mean, this, this particular passage, Deuteronomy 26, back home in India, in our Dalit liberation theology, uh, people who have engaged with Dalit theology, again, in the context of caste and oppression, have picked this, uh, particularly verse 5, Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 and 6, uh, I mean, as a creed for yeah. our Dalit context, where to say, the wandering Armenian were my ancestors. Yeah. And in, in, our, in the translation of my local language, the word wandering is not just wandering, but it is like the lost Armenian. Yeah. But how, I mean, 
Dalit theology has sought this to be a creed to, to see that God is journeying. Yes. Journeying with us when we have been oppressed. Yes. And, and I think there's, there's yes. a tension here within the text. And this is one of the glories of a text like this. On the one hand, you've got the offering of the first fruits that's saying, thank you, God, for this lovely land you've given us, which you allowed us to conquer. But then you've got kind of almost inserted into it this kind of mini creed about the wandering Aramean. And yeah. it's it's about, you know, actually there is there is a memory of a time where we were not the top dog, where we we were those who had ourselves been dispossessed. Yeah. And holding those two in tension with each other of mm -hmm. being the, the rulers, but also then being the oppressed. How do they how does that tension that's there within the text mm -hmm. give us uh freedom as preachers perhaps to explore where we situate ourselves in relationship to power as mm. as christians in our world mm. um, i mean you, you can get caught up in all sorts of source critical stuff on that i mean you know i i know the source critics have said you know was that a bit added later or something and i kind of think well it probably was but i'm not sure that's the most interesting question to ask of it so i would suggest preachers kind of don't go too far down uh, trying to write your source criticism larger on your congregation, just hold it in the background and then focus on the canonical text mm. and uh, the tensions that are there that reveal something of the tensions around how we live before God and how we discern what God's asking us to do and be. Mm. Mm. Now, uh, I think, uh, Simon, that's really helpful. And thank you for this stimulating conversation and provocative conversation, challenging us to engage in what is the politics of scripture and try to be a little more cautious, don't take on carried away by the dominant narratives, try to understand it from the perspectives of the powerless, those who have been invaded. Uh, so I think there is quite uh, an immense depth of resource that you've given us, so which, for which we want thank to thank you. But for people, for preachers, I mean, if, you, if they want to pick on three themes from all of these conversations, uh, what, would, what would three words or three themes that you would want to suggest for the preachers this week? I think that it, for this week, for me, it comes back to power and nationalism and conquest. Mm. Power, nationalism and conquest. Yeah. So, and therefore, what is gospel in such a context? Yeah, what does it mean? Do, is, is there such a thing as a Christian country? Who holds power and why do we ask them to hold power and what kind of power do they hold? Mm. And... Uh, what do we do with that power at a national level? Mm. Who, who, how, how do we negotiate our international borders? Mm. Mm. I mean, profound, uh, Simon. I think I'm sure our, our preachers this week across whoever are listener, listening will engage in these questions uh, and try to see how do we translate the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant and meaningful for our times today. So thank you so much, uh, Simon, for coming on and sharing your wisdom and reflections with us today. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to the rest of uh, rest of you who are joining uh, uh, this podcast, listening to it from your own homes. If you have enjoyed uh, this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and share this episode with your friends. We know all our listeners are a passionate and knowledgeable uh, people, and we would love to build a community of mutual learning and encouragement around the podcast. So if this series... Uh, if you have your own thoughts and if you want to share your thoughts, the best place to join the conversation is on Twitter at pulpit underscore politics or hashtag politics uh, in the pulpit or on our Facebook community, which you can access through 
the joint public issues team's Facebook page and their website, jointpublicissues.org.uk. Uh, each week, I, I leave a question for our listeners to engage with. And my question this week for all those who are listening uh, this week is, uh, what are the modern forms of systemic in injustices to whose temptations we are yielding today? And how can we be like Jesus with Jesus resist them? Allow me to repeat my question. What are the modern forms of systemic injustices to whose temptations we are yielding today? And how can we be like Jesus with Jesus resist such temptations today? So before we end, our listeners may be interested again as we have been pitching it. The JPITS 2022 conference tickets are on and available which is on the 11th of June on the theme from the ground up, unearthing hope and seeking justice. Please book your tickets and I'm sure the conference is going to be a great time for us, those of us who are thinking about the relevance of gospel in uh, in the socio-economic political context of our times today. Uh, once again, I would like to thank Simon for joining us uh, for this week and for the, the powerful conversation that we have had on the text uh, for this week. So we'll continue to remember people in Ukraine at this point. So let us go into both our politics and pul pulpit with a prayer, which I'm reading from the Joint Public Issues team's prayer on uh, Ukraine. So let us look to God in prayer. God of all, with alarm and concern, we bring before you the military intervention in Ukraine. In a world you made for peace and flourishing, we lament the use of armed force. We mourn every casualty of this conflict, every precious life extinguished by war. We pray comfort for those who grieve and those who are fearful. Hear our longing that leaders and nations will honor the worth of all people by having the courage to resolve conflict through friendship and dialogue. May all our human failings be transformed by your wonderful grace and goodness. We ask this in the name of Christ, the author of peace and sustainer of creation. Amen.